Okay, here we go. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Trying to Be Kind, a podcast that looks at academic texts that try to represent themselves about the tabletop RPG space. Okay, so as unofficial wrangler of conversation, here we are with our normal uh, intros. Uh, Jared and Fiona and I are joined by a special guest. So here's the question for today, which is... What is your go-to tabletop? Oh, oh my gosh, not tabletop. What is your go-to karaoke jam? Tabletop jam. What's a tabletop jam? Orange. Okay. So yeah, what is your go-to karaoke jam? My go-to karaoke song is "Blister in the Sun" by the Violent Thins because I'm very cool and grew up in the '90s. Oh, my <laughs> name's Jared. Also, I didn't say that a moment ago. Do you remember that time the Violent Femmes were on Sabrina the Teenage Witch? Or at least Gordon was. You remember that? What? No. no. Yeah, yeah. The Gordon from the Violent Femmes was on Sabrina the Teenage Witch one time. Oh That's your 90s fun fact of the day. Oh my goodness. Okay, how about you, Fiona? Go to Karaoke Jam. Hi, I'm Fiona Geist, and my go-to karaoke song is... Fiona? Um, Celebrity Skin by um, Hole. Okay, and hi, I'm Har. I believe karaoke is part of like uh, a sacred tradition. It is a sacred Philippine sport, and <laughs> it is also the great vehicle for all '80s power jams. So my go-to is Total Eclipse of the Heart by Bonnie Tyler, <laughs> in the actual key. Because I want to break my throat. Okay. <laughs> so, on that regards, we have a special guest today. Someone who's actually um, quoted quite a bit in the book we've been reviewing. The book being, oh goodness, of course, the title of this book, Losing Now, Tabletop RPG Design and Theory and Practice at the Forge, 2001 through 2012, Designs and Discussions with William J. White, as published by Palgrave Macmillan. So, we have Paul Segar. Paul, what's your go-to karaoke jam? Yeah, that's a hard question. I've pretty much fumbled karaoke every time I've I've done it. Um, you know, I usually go for something by Elvis and then just wreck it. That's great, though. Like, really, really messing up an Elvis song is its own art form, I think. You know, I actually don't know. <laughs> you you Elvis wouldn't song. say that if you'd heard it. <laughs> You, you don't know, like, Jewel okay. House Rock so, or, like, Blue Suede Shoes? So the last chapter kind of, speaking of wreckage, the, the, the last chapter kind of wrecked us. I, I know of them. I've heard them. But I would never actually, like, indulge in them, if that makes any uh-huh. sense, Fiona. That makes yeah. sense. So here we go. Right now we're in the chapter called The Rise and Fall of the Forge Booth, where we're looking at, it seems... Um, you know, what basically what put pre- the presence of the forge in a more physical space and where in the previous chapter it was seen as where the real magic happens. Oh, the quote being unfortunately located from where it was in that episode. But yeah, it basically starts off by, you know, of um, how the forge was able to like spur on indie design forward, particularly when you talked about like getting people into the actual uh 
activity of making the game happen and showing it and putting it out there. So Paul, you're quoted here where in page 90, according to Paul Saga, we came to uh, Gen Con in 2001 to sell Sorcerer and the success of that, bo- of that booth of bringing people from all across the country to help sell a game was the spark for how we would do the Forge booth from that point forward. So Paul, you're the, actually the only person we know who's number one really been active in the forage it seems as an online space and very active in terms of interactions of in-person uh, in-person meeting the people there so what's what was that like just like the booth itself yeah um the the booth was um i mean you've read you've read the chapter so you've you know um the, the booth had this trajectory of um, a, a lot of energy and um, it, you know, it became kind of a destination point for, for people over time where they would, um, you know, they'd be thinking in advance of the convention, you know, I, I really want to go to the forge booth and, uh, and see what's for sale. It, it was you know, the, the forge booth was kind of like, uh, you know, like a, like a zine fest or, a or, a um, you know, a mini, a mini con crammed into one 10 by 20 space within the larger context of, of Gen Con. So that's the thing, like, Here's the dichotomy we've discovered so far in this book, which is that it starts off by talking about an online space, but then it highlights becoming a very physical one. So in terms of like, those are actually, in my opinion, two different entities already. So I think that's already something I find slightly troublesome with how this dis- how this discussion's going. Because what white seems to be doing is white has these fond remembrances of the forge but then seems to conflate the physical in-person interactions of the forge with the online space of the forge when the forge is posited so much in the first three chapters as a largely online space Mm. so like in your so like that's that's something where i'm kind of like uh okay so was the forge like online in person, like the way it was online? Because it seems to be like this chapter has been focusing quite a bit on the kinds of interactions. Didn't really talk about so much about design, but rather talked about commerce. Or is is that even is that accurate? Is is what is is what I'm wondering. So, um, yeah, you know, I I see what you're saying. The 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 forge was multiple things. And when you say people are forgetting about the forge, um, which, you know, which aspect of the forge are you talking about? And, you know, a, a lot of the online activity was, a, you know, it was a discourse community talking about design theory. Um, but then, you know, another aspect of the, um, of the online community was a game design scene where people were designing experimentally and, you know, sharing and playing each other's games. Um, And, 
And then you've also, and, you know, and then you also have the, the forge booth where people were trying to bring those games to a part of the hobby that would never interact with the online scene. You know, the, the biggest game, you know, the biggest role-playing game convention in the country is Gen Con. And if you're, you're going to connect from your online scene to the wider hobby, you create a booth at the, um, or this is what the forge did create a booth at the, at, at Gen Con and try to show people what you're, what you're all about as a, as a design scene and what you've, what you've accomplished. So, um, you know, and there's overlap between, uh, all of those aspects, but it's not perfect overlap. There are a lot of people who participated primarily in the online design scene that didn't have a lot of use for the, for the theory side, you know, the, and, and those were separate discussion forums on the, on the forge, uh, um, website. So you, you could participate exclusively in actual play posts and the design scene without interacting very much with the, with the theory side. Um, and, uh, and there were people who participated with the booth who didn't really participate much with the, you know, any of the forge online activity at all. Luke Crane is an example of that. You know, he, um, and I think probably in this chapter, he gets interviewed where he talks about, um, yeah, the, the booth was awesome for me, you know, but, um, but he didn't participate in any of the, the, the theory. So that's, I guess, what's really interesting to me is that this book has been largely about um, sort of the theory of the Forge and the genesis of GNS theory, and then kind of has like the two core essays of what um, White takes the Forge to be are nuking the apple cart, which is on the commerce side, and, you know, um, I forget what the originary um, essay is for GNS theory, but like GNS theory, basically. So I'm interested in the difference between um, how this book positions the forge as sort of one part commerce and one part online theory um, versus sort of the thing you're describing of there's people that are heavily participating in actual play of forge games, but not really participating in discussions about GNS. And I guess that seems like an interesting thing to me, right? Is the idea that like some people just played these games and they weren't really participating or interested in this framing that is taken to be really important. Let me, let me try and recap and we'll see if I heard it accurately. But, um, but what I heard you saying, Fiona, was that there were some people who um, they cared only about playing the games and not about the forge itself as a as a theory scene. Okay, so Fiona's going to quit and restart her browser. <laughs> let's, let's, uh, Jared, is this enough for you to work with for us? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, a sort of a sort of a related question, maybe that is on my mind is so like we think of at least I do as a person who exists now in the RPG space and not then. Um, I think of the Forge as a very sort of, as very much defined by 
the theory component and also as a collection of games related to that theory component, right? So sort of a cottage industry kind of situation. But Paul, you're pointing to sort of this cadre of people that are definitely in the forge and part of it, but not necessarily participating in that theory component. Um, so what, how would you characterize the, the like defining quality of what, like the unifying quality, if, if there is one of the forge, like, is, is it mostly an aesthetic category? Is it a like market financial category? So, so for me, what, what the forge was for me was that really, you know, what really put energy into what the forge accomplished was, were several things, but, but really importantly, Ron Edwards wrote two articles early on. Um, one was, um, uh, it was system system matters, I think is what it was called. And it was where he, you know, early on, he, uh, started to talk about different, um, play priorities and it was a super inspiring article to me because when you look at the nineties landscape of games, and I think I say this in the chapter that, um, when Bill interviewed me, the, the, the nineties treated, treated role-playing games like they were a solved problem that, you know, you, you had a stat plus skill system, you had, uh, um, clan books, you had, um, you had a, a rule zero that said, if the game mechanics aren't working for you, it's your game, adapt them as necessary. Um, and, uh, and what, you know, this article by Ron said is that people have different play priorities and that system is something that, uh, informs what happens in play. And to me, I mean, that unlocked me as a, as a gamer, as a creator, because it gave me permission to try to figure out what my priorities were and how those priorities were different than what the publishing industry said uh, role-playing games were. And, uh, and I think that that, um, that particular unlocking is something that was powerful for a lot of people. And I think it launched the, the Forge as a design scene. When I participated in the, in the Forge, it felt to me like like a, like a research community in a way, uh, you know, people were hunting the internet for games on geo cities, you know, on people's personal websites that felt very, very different than, than what was being published for sale in, in the hobby and, and playing them and learning things. So games like, uh, Philippe Tremor's, uh, Wuthering Heights, um, uh, 
fairy Baselman's had a game called Soap. Um, uh, there was uh, a Doug Bolden had a game called Ghost Light. And uh, Zach Arnson had a number of games as well that were just on their websites. And when you start playing experimentally like that, you start learning things about how human beings interact creatively, you know, what it means to share the spotlight in ways and um, what collaboration looks like and what, you know, why stories are important to people. And, uh, and that was, and so people would play and then they would do actual play posts and, uh, and we were learning things that, um, you know, the, the hobby in the nineties didn't have any interest in. And it was, so that to me, that article launched, you know, the forge as a design community, I think. And then Ron's art, other article, the new Apple cart was, um, was about how the economics of publishing, uh, worked and, and how as a creator, in the context of the nineties, you were at, uh, you know, if you were doing freelance work, you were doing a, a disservice to you, to yourself because there were ways that you could be doing creative work that was meaningful to you. And that would be just as profitable to, to you as it would be if, um, if you were doing freelance work for, for a publisher that you could in fact, if you did it right, create exactly what you wanted to create, sell exactly what you, you know, sell what you created to people who were excited about it and make, you know, as much or more money doing it as you would if you rented yourself to a 90s era era publisher. And so, you know, that I think launched um, a lot of... Uh, energy as well, you know, in the forge. And then, you know, the, the, um, the discourse aspect of the forge was, um, was something that was important to, to Ron, you know, um, and to a lot of people who believed that, you know, if you put your mind to it, you could figure out, um, you know, you could, you could create mental models of the way a role-playing game works and, um, and that those models would offer insight to you. But I, I think, you know, I think when Bill and Michael at the beginning of the book are saying people are forgetting about the forge, I, I think a lot of, a lot of what they're saying is, um, they're thinking about that discourse community aspect of the forge. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the ways that discourse community wanted to offer uh, insights and, and inspirations. Um, but like I said, I think that there were a lot of people who found insights and inspirations just through experimental play and, um, and, you know, their actual play postings. Mm. Uh, so it's, you know, it's not like a, it's not like it was a perfect community where everybody was in alignment over um, how best to move gaming into a, you know, interesting new territory. 
people were finding their own their own path to um you know in their own their own insights so it, it sounds like and forgive me if i'm like uh putting words in your mouth here but it sounds like um we could characterize the forge maybe first and foremost as a rejection both on like theoretical grounds and you know practical financial grounds and maybe even aesthetic grounds um, as a rejection of the 90s D20 bloated era of RPGs and then an attempt to move, broadly speaking, forward from that rejection. And, and we, we might be able to say something like, you know, Ron Edwards had his sort of certain way of doing this. And so a lot of the Forge rallied around that particular way, but that was not an exclusive way, right? That there's definitely um, heterogeneity inside of that. Is that fair? I, I think, you know, um, you know, underlying exactly what you're saying there is, is something that I think of a lot and that's contrary energy. Mm. And I think contrary energy is something that is, often very fundamental to an arts scene. And I think, um, and so, you know, I think what you're putting your, you know, putting your finger on is, is, um, is that the forge was, you know, figuring out its own contrary energy to the landscape of nineties era, largely white wolf derivative, um, game publishing. Mm. And so, yes, I, I agree completely. Ron, you know, um, you know, with those initial couple of articles, I think Ron kicked off, uh, you know, a source of, of, uh, you know, energy for, for, for people. I, I will say one more thing about Ron, you know, um, uh, I think it's wrong to say Ron was, primarily focused on theory. And I know you didn't say that, but I, a lot of people think that, that that's, I might you know, that, that Ron was theory. Um, and, uh, and if you saw Ron active in the, in the discussion forums, um, you know, Ron has a number of abilities beyond just, you know, his uh, academic background and, and one of those is uh, he's a fantastic consultant to, to someone who's trying to think about their gameplay with their home group. And there are, there are numerous threads in the Forge discussion forums where someone will, you know, describe their frustrations with gaming and Ron will talk it through with them and, um, and they will figure things out that they would not have figured out otherwise, having bought into a lot of wrongheaded thinking about how games work and how how you know um, uh, you know things like the the rule zero. You know, rule zero is um, you know, rule zero says, uh, rule zero is a nineties era game publisher absolving themselves of having to make a game system that works. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
and there are so many, you know, there's so much thinking, you know, in, in the hobby that, um, about how play works and about how games work that can be a, a burden and it can keep people from having fun. And Ron's fantastic at that. So it's, um, and Ron, Ron disabused me of all sorts of frustrating baggage in, in my head by talking with him. Things like, like my job as the game master is to make the, the game world real. And if the player characters come into town and the, the people in town have a problem, well, they don't want some meddling kids um, messing up what they're, you know, what's going on, investigating their cult or whatever. So all of, um, so when I run a non-player character, they're, you know, why don't you guys move along? They don't have any interest in the, in the player characters. And, you know, you know, an obstructionist NPC that keeps the players from engaging. And it, it took me, you know, a conversation with Ron before I figured out, yeah, that's, you know, that's bad game mastering on my part. I should be thinking about the player characters as protagonists. And when, you know, and when a character is a protagonist, then the surrounding constellations of characters, they have a use for a protagonist. When they see a protagonist, they know it and they have something they need them to do and they have, or something they want. And this is an opportunity to get it. And it changes the dynamic in the game. Ron is fantastic at getting people to, to think, uh, think themselves out of the box that they are trapped in. You know, with due respect, like, I think, I think, I think that's a good thing, you know, like, yes, we should be able to talk to each other and get really great, um, really great feedback with that kind of thing. But for me, the, the, the problem with, with that kind of discussion is that we're not privy to that really, unless you're somehow managed, you're going to manage because this has always been my personal uh, misgiving with when people like resurrect discussions of the forge, which is I think online these days when whenever the forge comes up, it's often in the form of, oh, this discussion has happened already. I've mentioned this before in the podcast, like oh, this discussion has happened already. So because it has, um, why are you even starting this? It's already been unpacked in the forge. So like years later, you're told to go back to this to this mythical place which has been archived somewhere on the internet. So that's my, that's my like misgiving with, with that. And then it gets a little bit more compounded further when the memories are put in a book, which I think are not very self-critical because there's like a rosy tinted, uh, the forge is so wonderful. It was a great kind of a uh, situation. But then when we've been going through this book, I find, I sometimes I find kind of feel like, wait a minute, um, this is not uh, this is not how things are working out, and I think the legacy of the forge sometimes is it creates these conversations where um, where other issues come up. So, for example, like we're talking about the booth, the forge booth, and my big misgiving about the forge booth quote last time was the forge booth quote. Uh, the forge booth sounds like an amazing place, but from my perspective, which is someone who's not American someone who needs to deal with America as a central location of the hobby. It, it then becomes this very, um, 
access-bound, wealth-bound event. And then, and then when you, so when you read about it, I just kind of go, well, that's nice. Um, here is an institution which has so many structural barriers in front of me. And I'm, and I'm, I, and I feel like I'm learning about it from a third party, which doesn't seem to have my best interests in mind as they write it. If that makes sense. Because it, it, yeah, it takes, I, I, I hear you on that. I mean, the, um, the, the forge, you know, in the book, Bill documents a number of harms that the forge did in various ways, tone policing in the forums you know, weird sales games that designers were playing with each other at, at the booth. Um, all of that stuff absolutely happened. The, you know, the forge, you know, and, um, and you're right. I mean, the, the people who were able to go to the forge booth and participate in it are, they're, they're privileged. They're mostly white straight dudes. Um, who had at least, you know, Gen Con is expensive. Even, even when you do a booth collective, like the Forge booth, um, you know, meal costs, hotel costs, travel costs. Um, it's a, it's a super expensive proposition and it's, um, and your ability to participate in the Forge booth is, especially when, you know, you're not really going to sell that many copies of your game. You're, you know, you're not going to break even on, on those costs. If I sell thirty copies of a of a twelve dollar game, um, you know that covers you know my hotel for two nights tops. You know that, and it's a four day convention. It doesn't cover my food. You know, so um, so you're you're right. It is absolutely a um, you know you're you're um, you're you're watching the the people who who have privilege do creative things. <laughs> you know, I mean, like maybe that's why I have like some misgivings because of the it's like I'm like really like really is this how that is that how that's supposed to work? So like uh, like he writes here like and this is where I think a lot of the a lot of like some of the stuff that we had a little issue where was it in this book uh, talks about like in page 97, the spirit of the booth and how basically he goes like he, he it, it repeats what you say, like Ron emphasized a spirit of mutualism for those coming to the first true forge booth in 20 in 2002, that you're not going to sell a hundred copies of your game. Even attempting to max out your sales is going to work against the shared mutualistic goals of the enterprise. And ultimately it'll work against everyone. So instead, he said, you must commit to attend for promotional purposes, not for sales, and understand that a sale for one person is an ultimate sale for everyone later. So in in that regard, I'm just kind of like, does it sounds almost like you had to give up your own interests for the name of the collective. So would you say the Forge was in Gen Con, like a gaming collective? Like what what was that in terms of how it's supposed to work? Yeah, um, I mean, that's, that's exactly, you know, that's exactly what the booth was. I mean, it, um, it was a, you know, it was a pop-up sales collective. Um, it was, you know, it was like a session zero crammed into one 
booth um, with after hours gaming at the hotels. It, um, and it, uh, you, you know, you, you weren't going to make a lot of money. You were, you know, there were people who sold three copies of their game, you know, in, in four days. Um, the most anybody ever sold of anything is probably 85 copies of a game. The year, the year that my life with master won the Diana Jones award, I sold 83 copies, something like that, that year. Um, the collective aspect of it was, was awesome. It, um, I mean, it really was, I mean, that quote definitely describes it to the extent that people bought into that. And there were isolated people who didn't. I, what, one other thing I will say, you know, the, um, in the, in the early years, it definitely was a, you know, white straight dudes, uh, with, with privilege, but that did change you know, over time, it did become more than that, you know, when, um, and it, and it did become, uh, more open to non-participation over time with, um, with the partnership with IPR, there were a lot of games for sale in the booth that didn't have a designer represented there you know, who hadn't paid to go to the convention, who hadn't, um, you know, wasn't paying hotel costs, who were maybe not even from the um, United States. Uh, and those games would get demoed at the booth by people who were familiar with them. Uh, when I when I ran the, the Ashcan front booth, which was not particularly successful, but I, I mean, I had, des- you know, I had uh, designers send me their, their zine games and they were for sale, you know, in the booth. Um, and then, you know, in, in later years, uh, a group of women designers did their own booth collective called pirate Jenny. Um, and they were not all, uh, they were not all straight and they were not all white. So, um, you know, over time, the, the model of the forge booth uh, broadened itself in, in ways that, um, you know, were, were a good thing. So, yeah, I think that's what like interests me because I think I'm the only person other than Paul that's been to Gen Con in this podcast. Jared, have you been? I forget. I have not. No, I have not. No, I haven't either. Yeah. I knew you had, I know you've been to Big Bad Con on the West Coast because we were planning to both meet up at the next one and then, you know, 2020 happened. Um, but um, I, you know, I ran games for Contessa and um, also like, you know, split rooms with people and such. But I've also played, uh, you know, Games on Demand, which is an offshoot of The Forge, if I remember correctly, or is heavily associated with the play culture that developed around it. And, you know, that was one of the spaces that I think was like very like welcoming to people of varied degrees of experience and varied degrees of interest in game design and, you know, was a more diverse crowd than some tables. Um, So, you know, that's a thing that I'm 
you know, interested in. It seems like games on demand, so on, these were the things where diversity was beginning to happen. And a lot of that came from, like, Forge Energy. So I guess my big question is, and I guess you can't really speak for the author, Paul, but in this regard, like, why are we getting, um, why do you think there's an impetus to remember the Forge when clearly the model of the Forge has been replicated and people have acknowledged that? Yeah, um, like you said, games on demand, you know, and and I think there's a pretty big quote for me at the end of this chapter from uh, my interview with Bill, where I talk about lots of things that I think are, uh, you know, a persistent legacy of the Forge and games on demand is one of them. You know, I think it's an outgrowth of the the booth demos where, you know, cat. Cat Miller, you know, we at, at the Forge booth, you know, and this was Ron's idea. Um, you know, he he had looked at, at Gen Con and he had seen how um, board game sellers would do these quick demos and how, you know, it was it really drew people in and helped them see the, you know, uh, help them see themselves actually, you know, playing and having fun with the with the game and wanting to own it. And uh, and he said, we should do that for um, for role-playing games and nobody, you know, historically, you know, before that, if you wanted to play a, a demo of a game at Gen Con, you could because most publishers w- were running them, but they were either running them as scheduled events or they would run them in their booth at scheduled times. And it would be a four hour game session and you would have to, you sign up on a whiteboard and you'd have to come back at a certain time and, uh, and Ron, you know, and so nobody, yeah, I mean, when Ron floated the idea, people didn't even really know what he was talking about. What do you mean a 20-minute demo? There's no such thing as a 20-minute demo of a, of a role-playing game. And, uh, um, but he knew what he was talking about. And when we did it, uh, it was, it was very engaging. It was, um, you know, people would, it would, you could really rope people into to playing a quick 20-minute demo. And when Kat Miller looked at that and she saw the energy and, and she also saw this sort of, uh, you know, she saw the underlying core of it was that if people had time, they would love to pick up and play something they'd never heard of before and have fun with it. And a lot of times people will get to the end of the demo and they'd be like, why I'd, I'd really love to keep playing these characters or I'd, re, you know, I really wish we had a little bit more time or whatever. So she created games on demand and it, it was a direct outgrowth of, you know, spontaneous gaming in the booth. And, and there are a number of, uh, you know, and that, that became a, um, that became a thing where, um, you know, because of the way she organized games on demand, where the game, you know, whatever somebody wanted to run would go up on a whiteboard. Um, then you got other game conventions starting to do this sort of pitch culture where if you wanted to run, some, you know, time slots were scheduled. If you wanted to run something, you'd get up in front of the room and say, you know, I want to run primetime adventures and um, who wants to play? And people would raise their hand or they would, you know, come up and gather around you and then you'd grab a table and you'd play. Or you'd say, you know, I'm working on a game. It's about vampires. I want, you know, three players to play test it. You know, I can't guarantee it's going to be any fun, but you'll help me 
and people would raise their hands or they would gather around you and you'd go play. And it, and that culture crept out to game conventions like, um, Camp Nerdly and, um, New Mexican and Forge Midwest. And, uh, you know, the, those things persist, you know, not games on demand is still going strong. These other game conventions are still going strong. Uh, self-publishing is still, is still going strong. So, you know, um, you know, when I read that early, you know, anecdote in the, in the book where, where Michael is saying, Bill, you know, I think people are forgetting about the forge. I think they're, I think they're focused on a couple of aspects of the forge that they think are still important. And I think one of those is the, the theory discourse that, um, that, you know, that they think is, you know, that it has, uh, value to inspire people and help them understand games. And I think, um, you know, maybe the online, you know, actual play culture where people were, um, you know, you don't see a lot of that sort of actual play posting, uh, happening, uh, you know, now, you know, outside, you know, the, um, I mean, I do it sometimes on Twitter. Um, when I played, uh, Bim's game recently, I did a long Twitter thread and there's, there's sort of a, there was sort of a forge sort of house style to that where, um, you know, it wasn't an exhaustive detailed accounting of what you played. It was, your reactions to certain mechanics and, you know, what you learned and why the game was exciting to you in certain ways. Um, so I, you know, I can see Bill and Michael thinking, you know, there are aspects of what the forge was online that, uh, don't have as much of an obvious legacy now. And, you know, maybe it's worth documenting some of that stuff. I don't, you know, well, I mean, I'm 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 unfair. I'm putting you on the spot, and you can't speak for them. <laughs> you know, you yeah, know. I, it's like it's like. What do you think? It's no. The reason why I bring it up is because like so many things, I think right now can be attributed to the forge, and are currently being attributed to the forge, and I'm just kind of like, so why does it need to be done? Uh, I mean, I see a lot of explosions happen online. Where I mean, I'm not gonna again not naming names, trying to be kind because I'm not out to flame anyone. But it has been done before where people go like, yeah, that's from the Forge. Or you should know your idea is not new. That was in the Forge already before. So I'm like, people, it's in the consciousness. It's still very much in gaming consciousness, mm. particularly for something that was designed to end. Right? Yeah, that's, like, yeah. that's something I would definitely, like as a person, again, on the scene now was not on the scene then. I feel very much like I and my contemporaries live in the shadow of the forge nearly as much as we live in the shadow of dungeons and dragons, you know, like that's, that's the, the only sort of obvious path available outside of dungeons and dragons and sort of to harken back a bit to your idea of contrary energy, Paul, I feel like I get uh, billed as someone inherently contrary 
to, you know, who's being inherently contrary to the forge, but I think actually like it's that, it's the same energy, you know, it's that same contrary energy. It's just that it, it so happens that what's, what's there to be pushed back on now looks very much like the forge. Yeah. I, you know, and I, I see that in you just so you know, <laughs> yeah, sure. um, the, uh, you know, like I said, I think, you know, I think an art scene, I think very often an art scene finds its energy, you know, the, the energy that it finds that, that really propels us, you know, propels it forward is a, is a contrary energy. It's reacting to something that, um, that it thinks could be done differently and that, um, and it wants to find, you know, would, uh, new possibilities and a new future. Um, you know, and I see islands of that, you know, one of the reasons that, you know, you're talking to me is because you've seen me talking about, um, things I'm excited about that are in our current sort of post forged landscape mm-hmm. where, um, but it's not, you know, I don't see I mean, what I see are islands of, you know, people are finding contrary energy in different ways. Um, you know, you have a tendency to sort of find your contrary energy, you know, you, you react to, um, you know, a certain kind of frustrating formalism, maybe, you know, um, I, I build my straw men, I burn them down. Like <laughs> I have my methods. Definitely. I, th- I think, you know, what I see in the, in the itch scene, I see, um, I see a lot of contrary energy, uh, directed at, you know, traditional capitalism within the, within the hobby where people, um, people want, to change the way the hobby thinks about and uses money and they want to be paid for their work, not for being not and not be paid for producing some sort of traditional object that has, you know, sanctioned traditional uh, physical characteristics or art characteristics or textual uh, size, you know, characteristics or qualities. Um, so I see a lot of contrary energy, you know, f- focused around how, how money works. Um, I see a lot of contrary energy focused around, uh, you know, certain, uh, you know, what are appropriate themes for, for a role-playing game. And um, so, so I, you know, that kind of, you know, that feels like an art scene to me, you know, it feels like, you know, it's finding energy that's going to propel itself in, in, uh, interesting directions. So, okay. I, I, I know this sounds so trite, but has the forge really left us then? I mean, if like, if the forge is an art scene of, of resistance and reaction, wouldn't, couldn't we say like, yeah, like, couldn't we say that that's still what's happening now with Itch and with other design communities, which are, I think, far more accessible now than they were several years ago? Like, right? I mean, like, is that my hopeful takeaway from this? Like, 
have we truly forgotten the forge or has the forge simply become like our, our, our blueprint for all these communities that we're looking at now? I think, you know, the, the Dadaists are not the same as the impressionists, you know, even though they have their own contrary energy. Um, and I think, um, I, and so I think that, you know, the, the scene that is happening right now is, um, you know, it's finding its own identity. I think I don't, you know, have, have we forgotten the forge? You know, like I said, I think the forge is, is present in game conventions and, uh, you know, like New Mexican and Camp Nerdly and Forge Midwest. I think the forge is present in uh, design challenges. You know, nobody was really, nobody in role-playing was really issuing design challenges before before the forge. And yet now, you know, it's, it's a thing. And, and I guess you could argue that, you know, is it a thing because it was a thing in the video game design scene or is it a thing because it was a thing in the, in the forge scene? I, you know, I don't know the answer to that, but, um, but I think, you know, there, there are lots of forge legacies that are, that are present now and get, you know, have gotten incorporated into the, the current scene. And there are lots of, you know, there are aspects of the forge, you know, some of the toxic aspects of the forge, maybe those of, you know, are rightly forgotten. <laughs> I think that's a good place to end. Where yeah. It's like, you know what? There were good things. And let's not try to bring on the, uh, <laughs> the negativity and the toxicity back along with it as we do our recollections. So <laughs> thank you so much, Paul. It's yeah, thank you so much. Personally, a, yeah, I just, you could personally can I just say like this is a much like after last week's episode. This is such a chill time. It's <laughs> yeah, for real. All story hour. <laughs> I've really I enjoyed this. this. <laughs> well, you know, I I was there, so it's um, I didn't even have to reread the chapter. <laughs> you lived that chapter. The best kind. Like, <laughs> no need to reread. I, I have it in me. All right, everyone. So yeah, that is us trying to be kind. Where I think we were, I think we were remarkably kind today. Yeah, yeah. as kind as we've been, I think. <laughs>